you hold down the button on the top of your phone for like five seconds, <laughs> it actually turns off. And when you turn that thing off, and the minute you turn that thing off, it is the scariest moment in the world because you are saying to the world, you are not my Lord. friends, and welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am so excited about this episode. Uh, I know I say that about every episode, but I, I really am. I'm excited about every single episode that I do. But this one is a very special episode because I have not... I'm going to go ahead and say this. <laughs> I, I have not one of my favorite Christian authors, but as I recently said on Twitter, my favorite Christian author and uh, maybe it's because uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien are dead that I can't have them on. But the third best <laughs> option behind Lewis and Tolkien <laughs> is my, uh, I'm going to say my good friend. We haven't hung out a lot, but I feel like I, I, I know you inside and out. <laughs> my, my good friend, uh, Dr. A.J. Swoboda. A.J., thanks so much for being on Theology in the Raw. I'm uh, I'm honored to be here, and either you've never you've never read anything I've ever written, or you've never read Tolkien and Lewis. Regardless, yeah. I, well, so let's just jump into that. You're you're you as a writer. You're, you're a pastor. You're uh, you have a PhD. You're a teacher, professor, but you've written several books. I have two here in front of me. I think my wife might have um, the uh, one of the uh, the other ones that I have. Uh, this I'm holding in my hands. The first one I read, I think I told you the backstory on this. It's called A Glorious Dark, which has one of the coolest covers, by the way. Um, Finding Hope and the Tension Between Belief and Experience. I had I met a guy here years ago. He was part of uh, um, the Foursquare Church, which is your Foursquare, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, he said, uh, oh, my gosh, you, you got to read this guy, A.J. Swoboda. He's Foursquare. He's written this book, A Glorious Dark. It's my favorite book I've ever read. So, I think he was a student out here in, in at Northwest Nazarene University in Nampa. And I said, wow, well, that's, you know, somebody like gives that kind of praise. I got to check it out. And uh, I grabbed it, read it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is so great on so many levels. Um, just the writing style, I just love. I want to talk more about that. But the, what I love about the stuff you write on, at least with, a glorious dark and, and, and another book you wrote called uh, the dusty ones you you write on and i want you to fill in the get the word here but what i would describe is like the 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 underside of christianity the dark side of christianity the stuff that the lament the doubt the 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 wandering and and why even wandering is is can, can be good <laughs> and yeah, beautiful yeah. and necessary um so how would you describe kind of that theme that's kind of woven throughout a lot of your books underside of christianity or what would be yeah that's a good way to put that you know the first three popular books that i wrote although this this puts aside you know the the academic stuff that um that that i i i you know obviously has an academic bent but the really the popular stuff uh the the first book that i wrote called messy god likes it that way the second one a glorious dark and then the dusty ones um Really, all three of those are birthed out of my pastoral experience of walking alongside people who are attempting to follow Jesus and have these um, a, a certain set of questions, a certain set of sensibilities, and a certain sense of fears 
around things that they feel are not appropriate to engage their faith in. Uh, mm. So what, what do you do when you, you literally have no idea if God still loves you? What do you do when um, you felt like God spoke this thing to you and then this thing happened? Um, I mean, so much of our walks with Jesus have to do with those questions. And often those questions, just, we have nowhere to take them to. I remember when I, one of the first times I went to Disneyland, I remember going through a ride and I had, somebody said to me, kind of, I'd become an adult. And they said, next time you go in one of those rides, turn around during the ride and look at behind everything. So we're in this ride and Mm. I turned around in the middle of the ride and I'd never looked behind me. And all I saw was just like unpainted walls and undone areas. I mean, it's the weirdest thing because, you, you know, you have the, the part that everybody sees and then the part that nobody sees. Yeah. And um, th- there's a part in, in essence, I think there's a part to the Christian faith um, that we often don't look at that um, we're afraid to ask questions about or deal with. And I really sought to, to write those three books in that vein. I love that, the mm. underbelly, as it were, of the Christian faith, uh, the part that's unseen. Um, and by God's grace, you know, we, we've been able to have an impact in some people's lives and be able to serve a number of people uh, through those books. So, and I'm, I praise God that somebody other than my mom has, has read them. That means a lot to me. <laughs> I imagine that there's probably a, a much larger number of Christians who need that kind of message. And I think there's a shortage of people willing to talk about it or even describe it with the sort of honesty, I almost said grit, and maybe maybe grit and honesty are, are the best terms that, that you're willing to to describe, even revealing some of your own you know darkness and, mm. and, and trouble with Christianity in a very honest way while maintaining faith. And and I, I get I just the more people I talk to that when you dig down deep, there's it's almost like there's an underbelly to our, everybody's faith on some level, and, and, we, and we need to kind of explore and embrace and, and wrestle with that. What I love, so I, I love the the themes that you have in your books, and um, and the fact that you know I, I'm an intellect, you're an intellect, and so I when I'm reading, I just I do I can't shut that off. So I am looking for thoughtfulness. It doesn't need to be heady. In fact, I don't. Even, I actually don't like reading academic books. I can't. I don't comprehend things very. So the real heavy, like yeah. kind of. You know, I love Karl Barth, but it's torture. Read like I just—it's so hard for me when I do it. I love it, but um, so you—you're able to talk in a way that's very free, very casual, and yet it's very thoughtful. I love that. But probably the, the thing I love most about your writing is the artistry in the act of writing. I mean, mo- most people mm. are either very analytical or very artistic. I think your circuits got blown somewhere to somehow that's like fused together and you blend thoughtfulness and artistry in writing in a way that's, that's very uncommon. I hate to say it, but uncommon among Christian writers. It's hard for me to read Christian books anymore because the, there's little to no artistry in, in the actual writing. So can you talk to me about, I mean, we've talked about this before over, over barbecue in, in Portland a couple of years ago, but <laughs> do, do you work at that? Is that fun for mm. you? Is it natural? Do you read books on writing? I know you read a lot of other good writers, but where, where does that come from? Hit the nail on the head. I mean, there's just so much uh, theological language, theological writing that just doesn't, uh, it doesn't really connect with the human soul. Mm. Um, actually, the, the, the guy that I read, uh, this, this, had, this was about 10 years ago. I read a book. Uh, by a New Testament scholar by the name of Thomas Schmidt. He mm. wrote a book called A Scandalous Beauty. 
it's got it's uh, this. Uh, I think I uh, Baker put it out if I remember. But this is that. I mean, he is he was a deeply well respected New Testament scholar, and he wrote this book on uh, on basically the cross. And he, what he attempted to do was he took his years, his decades of New Testament scholarship, and he put it into poetry. I mean, he put mm-hmm. it into uh, language that I've never seen anybody do. And it, it is, I would say to this day, probably the best book I've ever written or ever read, Thomas really? Schmidt's book, wow. Scandalous right. Beauty. Um, I would recommend it to every single human being. It it sold almost no copies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it with the best books always often don't sell uh, very many. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's the, unfortunately, um, there's this uh, bifurcation, this split between seminary life and church life. And often we say, well, I want to bring the best of seminary to the church. And I think the reverse is important too. We need to take the best of the church to the seminary. And that is the best of the church to theology, the best of the church to um, our academic life. And the best, mm-hmm. the best, uh, I think the best, the best writings uh, have those circuits blown, and that there is no wall, dividing wall of hostility between good theology <laughs> and the Christian life, uh, and by G- the grace of Jesus. I mean, I, again, the theologians at the, in the life of Jesus, right? It was, it was ultimately, ironically, the theologians who crucified the Son of God. I mean, it, it is the people who knew the most about God that are the most hostile to God when He actually comes in human flesh. Um, and I think, I think theology. Pure academic theology can be inherently dangerous to the human soul. Um, You're saying that as a theologian. You're a theologian. As a theologian, yeah. 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 (laughs) I remember walking into the Academy of uh, uh, American uh, American Academy of Religion and the Mm -hmm. Society for Biblical Literature Hall a couple years ago, where all the books are, and all these theologians and biblical scholars were, you know, walking around and and so holding up their books and. And I walked in and it was the first time that I had this epiphany that theology can be idolatry too, mm. that we can worship our theology. It disturbed me to death that the point of theology is not theology. The point of theology only matters if it delivers us into the hands of Jesus. You have a quote here. Let me see, just as you're talking, I, I was reading it this morning and I highlighted it. Um, oh gosh. Oh yeah. Theology cannot save anyone. It can only point us to the one who saves. <laughs> it's so it's so simple but brilliant that's what i love about your writing it's like you say things it's like you're like oh of course but you put it mm. in such a way that i've never like seen it so succinctly i mean you you could in yeah when i read your books it's almost like there's like i literally have like a thousand tweets i could <laughs> quote mm. from here because mm. you're able to package stuff in such a succinct but memorable and compelling way it's it's beautiful L- let's talk about your re- your recent book or recent it's not even out yet right uh, it comes out yeah next month. yeah yeah um, yep, it's called, it comes out on the 20th of this month. Yep. 20th of February uh, called Sub- Subversive Sabbath. Great name, by the way. The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop World. Um, I just got this in the mail a couple days ago. Uh, so I'm on page X. or <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I just finished the prologue. I think I'm on page four. And I'm already, uh, I mean, you can see I've got like underlined. Well, I don't know if you can see it, but... Uh, yeah, it's just I, I, my highlighters get a workout because every line is just so good. T- tell us about this book. I mean, there's many books on the Sabbath. Um, why did you feel compelled to write this book? And how is this one maybe different? Or not that it has to be, but yeah. what, what, is, uh, what are people going to get out of this book and, and why do they need to read it? Yeah, so I, I wrote this this book really birthed out of a personal crisis in my own life. So I, I began to observe um, as I 
paid attention to the community that I pastor here in Portland, I pastor a church called Theophilus uh, in urban Southeast Portland, um, that the people that I was pastoring were really tired, exhausted, and uh, honestly just having a really difficult time being present. Um, I read this article uh, by Andrew Sullivan, who wrote uh, writes for the New York Magazine and a number of other things that had been passed on to me. And it was the title of the article was I used to be a human being. And the whole article is about this guy who um, blogged like, you know, 12 times a day, spent, you know, 15 hours a day in front of his computer and he just burned out and he, he just gave up the Internet. And he has a line in this article where he talks about the, the greatest sort of the, the thing that has the potential to get in the way of the church in the 21st century um, is not a hedonism, but distraction. Mm-hmm. Um, that the that the thing the thing that has the potential to bring the church down, as it were, uh, you know, is is a church that is completely distracted. And so, personally, I just began to observe our church and the people uh, that I I'm connected with, just highly distracted. Every they're attempting to be everywhere, pretending to be omniscient, omnipresent, omni you know all the omnis. Uh, and then personally, um, I went through a, a bit of a burnout experience myself when I was a, a college pastor, and I was working 80 hours a week and gave myself to everybody and everywhere all the time. I had become a quivering mass of availability. Um, I was available to everybody but God, and mm-hmm. essentially was reading a Eugene Peterson book and uh, began to realize that the Sabbath is this principle, this idea, this reality that I had completely overlooked in the Bible. I mean, completely overlooked uh, to the degree that you know of the nine commandments, right? You've got these, uh, these, these the ten commandments. Nine of them would be commandments that I would say, yeah, I sign up for that. So that's obviously, obviously. But then you come to the Sabbath and you're like, well, I don't have any idea how to how to deal with that. In fact, three years ago, I I, pre- I preached on the Sabbath for three weeks in our church, and I have preached on things in our church that have upset a lot of people. I preached on sexuality. I preached against smoking marijuana. I have to. I'm in Portland. I got to preach on that all the time. Um, you know, I preached on all sorts of things that have upset people, and I preached for three weeks on the Sabbath, and I have never had more people leave our church than when Are I preached serious? on the Are you serious? Dead serious. Go, okay, is, dr- I want to drill down there. So yeah, t- keep going on that. Well, I mean, the, here's the epiphany. I, I had a, a bit of an epiphany just after that. We um, talked about the Sabbath for three days, and it was it brought up so many points of pain for people. Um, I remember uh, this particular mom, uh, mom of like four, uh, who just was so disheartened that God would desire her to rest. And she felt like it was just one more command that she couldn't handle. Um, and it just brought up so many emotions. I was sitting with our elders, uh, after preaching that, that, that three weeks. And, uh, I had this just epiphany that scared me to death. And it was that, you know, you take these 10 commandments, um, and, and you go through all 10 of them. You know, if, if I, if I was to break nine of those commandments, I'd probably lose my job. You know, if I if I cheated on my wife, I'd probably lose my job. If, if I stole money from the church, I'd probably lose my job. If I started, you know, preaching the gospel of Baal, you know, I'd probably <laughs> lose my job. And but but if but if I but if I break the Sabbath, if I break the Sabbath or I don't keep the Sabbath, um, I'll probably get a raise. Wow. And I had I had this just mind numbing epiphany that I was completely not only overlooking this biblical theme that Jesus himself obeyed, 
um, but that simultaneously we had created a church system that celebrated uh, mm. the breaking of something that that God instituted at creation. I mean, the 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 the, the Sabbath invitation comes before the invitation to not murder in the Bible. It's in Genesis one and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's built into creation. So, at, at the end of the day, it is birthed out of a desire to see the church that God did not invite us or create us to become slaves, but to be His friends. And that God wants to walk with us in the Garden of Eden and enjoy all that God has made. I'm going to tweet that line about if I if I break the second commandment, third commandment, fourth commandment, fifth commandment, I would get fired, get divorced. But if I break the Sabbath, I get a raise. That's, I mean, I, I want to say that's not true, but it's kind of exactly true. You know, the pastor that works super hard and is you know night and day, and if if you need to meet up on Sunday night, he drop what he is doing to do that. Like that's, uh, if he doesn't do that, it's looked upon as being like, well, come on, man, what are we paying you here for? So, so I, I've got another question. I guess this is a little bit more academic on the Sabbath because it, you know, everything you're saying, I, I, I you know, it makes sense. It's in creation, everything, but you, you do have, you know, I, as you know, and as I ho- hope you have an answer to, you know, statements in the new Testament in Romans 14, Colossians two, and, and other passages, maybe Hebrews, you know, or, or in, in the gospels where, it seems like there might be some shifts in the, if I can say, the demands or expectations of the Sabbath for God's people. And I know this is where the debate comes and why some people keep it, some people mm. don't. What are your thoughts on all of that? I mean, is there any sort of shift between sort of the old covenant expectation of Sabbath keeping a new covenant expectation? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so obviously the question comes into play, right? What, what relationship, what is the motivating factor for why one would keep a Sabbath? And certainly defining what a Sabbath is, I think is an important thing. Um, so for example, I would say looking at the biblical narrative that a Sabbath is a 24 hour period that one sets, one sets aside to be present to God, others to, 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 to simply be not to do, but to be, uh, that 24 hours um, is not something that is primarily located in the law. And that's an important concept for us because obviously, for example, three uh, uh, Galatians 3, what, 23, 28, uh, when the seed comes that we, were, we no longer are, are bound by the law, but we're sort of freed from uh, <clears throat> this, uh, th- this law. I mean, th- there's a reason we don't do circumcision anymore, right? And there, there's important reasons why that's the case uh, as Gentiles. Um, that that's not a you know part of the the legal code that we continue to uh, be faithful to. However, the the commandment and the invitation to rest to me is not located only in the law. It is located in creation. Now, why is mm-hmm. that important? Um, the, the 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 invitation to rest, which is found in the uh, Genesis one and two creation narrative, uh, comes on the heels of God creating uh, all the whole world. Right? God makes one day one day. Two, day three, day four, comes all the way to day six. God makes Adam and Eve on day six. Day seven becomes the day of rest. God says, on, you know, you're going to work six days, but on one day a week, you're going to rest and you're going to be with me. Which incidentally, I think the, the very first image of the gospel in the Bible uh, is in Genesis, that, that creation account. Uh, God created Adam and Eve on day six and day seven was a day of rest. I mean, it is, it should, yeah. it should just Reveal to us God's heart to recognize that Adam and Eve's first day of existence was a day of rest. Hmm. So, so it would it be too simple to say, if I'm hearing you correctly, that the specific kind of Sabbath command 
um, that, that you see in Exodus and the law and the 10 commandments, like that, that was a specific kind of culturally bound a little bit. Correct. Uh, covenant tied command and all its particulars, but the underlying principle of resting even maybe yes. one day a week is built into creation. So we don't need to, observe I don't, the... I don't, I don't know anybody that would say I don't need to eat. That's just an old Testament command, <laughs> right? Like, like the need to rest is it is literally an atheist needs the Sabbath as much as anybody. Hmm. It is, it is like eating. It is like breathing. It is, it is a rhythm that God has established into the created realm. To not rest is to live a genetically modified life. Wow. So the specifics aren't really... The specifics really, frankly, don't matter. Exactly. For example, we don't, on the Sabbath, as when my family and I keep a Sabbath, I'm not... Um, and for any of your listeners that are concerned that this is some sort of new Judaic law that we're bringing back, I eat way too much bacon for anybody to make the case that I'm attempting <laughs> to bring back some sort of you know new Judaism that's you know uh, legalism. So no, I mean we don't sweep out the yeast in our home. You know when we keep a Sabbath, Th- those are culturally bound things that were important for the Jewish com- the, Ju- the Jewish people. But the principle of the Sabbath, which is a day of rest set aside a day a week to breathe and be with God still remains. Jesus, when he's looking towards the future and he says, when I return, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Even Jesus's own teaching uh, seems to suggest that he believed that the Sabbath would be a continued practice. That would be, and Jesus himself even Sabbath. I mean, Jesus, that we got to deal with the fact that Jesus was not only the Lord of the harvest, he was the Lord of the Sabbath as well. And what does that mean? He was the Lord, not just of the work, but he's the Lord of the rest as well. Um, our, the entire future orientation of the church, of God's people, our redemption is a dimension called heaven, which is what? Sabbath. Uh, we're not saved uh, by keeping a Sabbath, uh, right? When we keep a Sabbath, that doesn't save us. We're saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. We're not mm-hmm. saved by the Sabbath, but we should remember that when we are saved, we are saved for the Sabbath because we mm-hmm. will ultimately be with God in Sabbath for eternity. Um, so practicing the Sabbath now is just practicing for eternity. We're just getting uh-huh. ready for eternity. So you said to set, you know, set aside a day to, to rest and to be with God. Can you unpack that a little bit? And let me just give you an example. Like for me, I'm not, I haven't at all been a good Sabbath keeper in the sense that, um, I guess more in the strict sense, but I have, I don't, even in my busiest moments, um, I don't work on a Saturday or even Sunday unless you can, you know, I guess you can say there's certain types of church work that are work that I've, I've done, you know, through different seasons mm. or whatever. But like, as far as Saturday, even I remember one, I was working like 18 hour days on, on a book project or times during my PhD when it was just round the clock. And I still, I didn't touch anything on Saturday, but I wouldn't, if I'm honest, I wouldn't say I set aside that time for God. It was really just being with my family or playing or, you know, we'd go to the park and, and, and me, I don't, it's, it's hard for me to do two things at one time. So if I'm playing with my kids, I'm not, I'm not thinking about God because I can only do one thing, play with my kids. Mm. <laughs> and well, so, when you think, yeah, th- th- this is great. You brought up, by the way, the point about pastoring, which, which I, I, this is why this book subversive Sabbath is so, is so stinking important because there, if, if the Sabbath, by the way, has to be Sunday, if we're going to say it has to be mm-hmm. a certain day, which I would argue it isn't. There's a, a point at okay. the end of the book of Colossians where Paul says, don't bicker about what day the Sabbath is, what day the new moon is. Like, I think yeah. he's actually saying, like, I, it doesn't, I don't think, I think he's freeing us from mm. the what day it has to be. If it's going to be Sunday, every pastor that's listening to this is toast. 
because there's yeah. never been a day in human history that a pastor's gotten out on Sunday and gone, well, that was a refreshing experience. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, Sunday is just, it's really hard. Right. Um, and so this notion, right, Adam and Eve, I just want to go back to Adam and Eve. What was Karl Barth actually, we, you know, you and I talked about this before the show. Karl Barth's really hard to read, but he, when Karl Barth wrote, wrote about the Sabbath, he said, uh, he identified that when Adam and Eve, that first day of existence, when they were with God and they were walking in the garden, and they were simply present to God and each other. It wasn't that they were just with God. They had each other. They had the garden. They walked around and they, I, I, you just got to imagine, what did they ask? You know, God, how did you invent, you know, trees? Why did you make, you know, cauliflower? God, why did you, I mean, it's not just a day to be with God. They're with each other as well. And they're with the animals. They're with creation. They're at shalom. Mm -hmm. I think that we need to understand that the Sabbath is not just about being um, with God, we are with God all the time. We're with God seven days a week, mm -hmm. but there's a specific awareness of God's presence in our life, okay. um, that we are at Shalom and playing with your kids in the front yard. Um, you don't have to be thinking about God to be with God. You are setting aside time to be with God and be with the people that you love the most. And that is absolutely what the Sabbath is all about. That's gosh, I want to do another podcast just on that. <laughs> <laughs> just on that idea, because I, I constantly wrestle with that, with what does it mean to be present with God, to be with God, to even be communing with God. And I, I've it's taken me so, I would say I've been a Christian for 22 years, maybe. And it's taken me probably 18 to 20 of those years to figure out that I, the whole like being with God by yourself is so hard for me. I'm a terrible mm. Christian by myself, mm. I, but mm. I truly, I am. No, I am. Um, I, but when I'm around God's people, that's when I feel like my spirituality is energized. And I would say for most of my Christian life, I felt guilty about that. But I just mm. wonder if we, if the body of Christ is more than just a metaphor, if, if Christian community, very broadly speaking, when you're in that kind of life-giving, you know, uh, community, if if that's actually the way it should be, you know, like mm, that that mm, that is without you know, kind of thinking specific thoughts about God or specifically praying, you know, word for word to God, but actually being in a the 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 presence of other people, if that is a yes. means in which we're experiencing God, and maybe even you know, creation too, or family, or 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 working with wood or <laughs> living out our kind of creational mm. existence. I, I don't, I don't, I just, I'm a, would you, am I onto something? Cause that would be incredibly freeing. <laughs> Cause I constantly have tons of guilt on me about like, am I even spiritual? Like, you know, like <laughs> absolutely. And to, and to, and to make, and to make it super clear, I guess, technically speaking, shame and guilt are work. So to actually be feeling <laughs> shame and guilt, is to actually break this up. You, you have to understand that that this is to be a day where you you are you are freed in Jesus. The Lord of the Sabbath has freed you, and you can be at peace. Um, if you ever go to a Jewish uh, Sabbath service on Saturday, it's very interesting. Orthodox Jewish communities. Uh, if you're if if you live in the, in a city, um, you have to live close enough to the synagogue that you can walk. And the reason is on the Sabbath, when you walk to synagogue, that you can always walk with other people. You never walk alone. You always walk with other people. There's built into, I mean, you look at Jesus in the New Testament. How many times is Jesus on the Sabbath 
at synagogue. He is with other people. He is present with his friends, his family. Jesus is around others. I, I would argue that the idea of sort of an isolationist Sabbath has almost no biblical precedent whatsoever, wow. which is actually really hard for me as an introvert because I mm. want it to be all about me and just sit around. Um, mm. And so the Sabbath actually, it, it builds in all those things, celebration, good food, mm. um, family, friends, people we love. Um, I think one of the most important things we can do on the Sabbath as well uh, just as simple as it is, is just to turn our phones off, which that yeah. in itself is almost impossible to do. Yeah. Um, when you, t- you know, that moment, some, some people, some of your listeners don't know that if you hold down the button on the top of your phone for like five seconds, <laughs> it actually turns off. And when you turn that thing off, the people who invented that phone knew what they were doing because when it turns off, it flashes a little apple with a bite taken out of it. Like you're back in the garden of Eden and you've been eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And <laughs> if you turn that thing off, and the minute you turn that thing off, it is the scariest moment in the world because you are saying to the world, you are not my Lord. Wow. And, and, and the truth is we live our lives thinking so us-centered that the world exists because we are in it. And here's the hardest part is when you turn your phone back on after 24 hours and the world is still going mm. because you realize that you are not the Lord of the world. It's like Moses going up on the mountain, right? He goes up on the mountain to see the Ten Commandments. He comes down, and all of God's people are worshiping a golden calf. That is why we hate the Sabbath, because we're terrified. I'm a pastor. I'm terrified. If I come down the mountain, everybody's worshiping a golden calf, I'm going to realize I'm a bad leader. That's not what scares me the most. What scares me the most is coming back down the mountain and seeing everybody worshiping God and realizing I'm not actually as important as I thought I was. Hmm. Wow. Uh, for you, AJ, so is Saturday typically your, your Sabbath day? Is that? So we, we, we were on Wednesday last year. My son turned six and is now in kindergarten, so we switched to Saturday. It's a movable Sabbath. And mm-hmm. we did it to Saturday because we want to be together as a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I make the case in the book that <clears throat> uh, the Sabbath was given to us, not us to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to us as a gift. And that means that we are not obliged um, we are not obliged to make it a specific day. The, the principle is one in seven as a day of rest. Um, and even the early church, you know, the earliest Jewish people, uh, Sabbath on Saturday, and then almost immediately the earliest Christians, uh, worshiped the, on the day of resurrection on Sunday. And I think that, that there's a trajectory in the church of some elasticity around what day has to be the Sabbath. Okay. Um, but I, you know, I, so for us, it's, it's Saturday. Yep. What, what does that typically look like for you? Do you, do you have like certain rhythms every week or is it just basically yes. kind of a day off? Or? Yep. So it's, it's almost uh, religious at this point. We've been doing it for 10 years and what happens is on the morning of the Sabbath. So Friday night I come home uh, after work. So usually around six o'clock I arrive at home. We have these Sabbath candles in our home. Uh, my son, uh, who's six, is, he's a pyromaniac, so he's already bl- lit, lit him and blown him out like four times. So I show up, and we we get together around the candles, and we light the candles, and we sing a song together. And um, it's a very simple, old-school Jewish song, and it just goes, Shabbat Shalom, to, and everybody gets names. So Shabbat Shalom to Quinn, Shabbat Shalom to AJ, Shabbat Shalom to Elliot. And then my son, he'll just keep naming stuff too. Cause he, that's, so Shabbat Shalom to the refrigerator, Shabbat Shalom to the chickens, and we'll start naming this stuff. And usually that night, Friday night, we'll just have a feast at home. And we go to bed in the morning. 
Uh, we wake up. The number one rule is nobody makes their bed on the Sabbath. So you're not allowed to make the bed. Okay. And my son comes upstairs. He wakes me up. I come downstairs with him and we make, we put bacon in the oven. Again, what anything, I'm, I'm not Jewish in any way, shape or form. So we do the bacon, we do the coffee and we, and my son and I make the biggest pancakes you could ever imagine. <laughs> and at that point, my wife comes downstairs and we just sit around the table for an hour and eat these massive pancakes. And actually the reason we do the pancakes is really, we have great intention behind it. Um, there's an old Jewish tradition that on the morning of the Sabbath, the father was to get up early and get a spoon of honey for every child in the family. And we, we, the, the goal was so that no child would ever forget the sweetness of God's rest. So we get up and we don't do honey. We do, we do maple syrup. And the goal is that in 50 years when I'm dead and gone, if anybody even utters the word Sabbath around my son, he'll just start to drool because he's so used to ingrained with this idea that the Sabbath mm. is sweet and we'll eat pancakes and my wife and I'll drink coffee. We'll talk. Um, usually around noon, uh, my son gets to watch a movie while uh, his mom and I get to take a nap. Mm. And, uh, and we, it's the best nap of the week. Mm. And um, we come downstairs, we eat a meal together, we go on walk, uh, we garden together, we go to the park, we go on a hike. Um, we do as best as we can to keep our phones off the whole day uh, and our, our screens off. And I, I'm going to tell you, Preston, I've been keeping a Sabbath in a non-religious, legalistic way, for in a graceful way, for 10 years. And, and every single Sabbath, it is like we're back in the Garden of Eden. And it doesn't make it easy. Sometimes it's horrible and crazy hard. Hmm. But God always shows up. There's, I remember, yeah. Yeah, there's, I want to tell you this. That I, I was, in researching this book, I came across... Um, these writings of uh, the Third Reich of Jewish, uh, of uh, Nazi soldiers in World War II, um, who found out that if they could disturb the Jewish Sabbath, that it would steal the hope of the Jews. So they would do all this crazy stuff to make the Sabbath hard for them. And so the Jews would always seek to keep the Sabbath, um, even though the conditions were horrific. horrific. And uh, there's this one line in a journal entry from a Nazi soldier who writes this, he goes, we try to destroy the Sabbath because when we destroy the Sabbath, we destroy the Jewish people. Mm. Because every time they keep the Sabbath, it's like they get their souls back again. I want to just close in prayer, dude. This this is, uh, <laughs> wow. Um, AJ, the book is Subversive Sabbath, The Surprising Power Rest in a Nonstop World. I really want to see this book widely distributed. And you made a comment way early on, and I would agree with some of the some of the best books. And I know you wouldn't say this is the best book, and I haven't read it yet, so I can't officially say, even though it's the best Christian author. <laughs> um, I, it, it is frustrating sometimes that books that are very profound and so good, so well written, don't get widely distributed. And um, uh, I really hope that this book spreads around in this concept. And I say that primarily to myself because I, I do have, I don't know what it is, man. I just, I, I, I would say I have workaholic tendencies. Like I do thrive on work. Um, my, you know, on, on the strength finders test, I'm a high achiever. So I like to accomplish my, my, my dream day is having this long list of things to do and just checking off every single one. And that last one, draw a line through it. And it's just, it's like euphoric, you know, 
Um, mm. So my, my wife is really great at balancing that out. She, she works incredibly hard, but she likes to play hard too and, and very sensitive to working too, too much. So we cram in a ton of work between Monday and, and Friday. Um, but come Saturday, I, I would say it's, it's not um, – we we're pretty good at family time. I would say we're really good, actually, at, at, at guarding, spending time as a family, not like working or not. Um, but I wouldn't say we're as intentional at building you know, more intentional like rhythms or habits like, like you're talking about. And man, I would love to explore more of that in my life because I'm. I feel like I'm always mm-hmm. butting up against burnout. I, I've burned out once or twice in the last ten years. Um, not like ended up in the hospital, kind of you know anxiety, panic attacks, but not far from that. And even I would say even right now, I, I'm constantly like, just my heart just feels like like it's in my throat, you know. And there's just a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. surrounding. A lot of it's just the nature of the stuff I talk about and do, and the people I work with, and and but I do bite off too much. I think <laughs> I know <laughs> yep. Yep. anyway. So I I'm clinging to your book right now, man, and super excited to read the whole thing. But, um, uh, yeah. Any last words for people that are like wanting to explore this more or like seeing in their own lives, just unhealthy busyness and distractions mm. and anxiety. Mm. Is there any, um, any other words you can give us as we fade out? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly I'd, I'd love everybody to, get a copy of the book and read it and not just get it, uh, but, but read it and um, find hope in this principle of the Sabbath because it, it is such a beautiful concept and such a real and important thing for the church in a world of people that are exhausted. The church needs to be the one that models how to rest because nobody else is modeling this. Yeah. And um, the people are craving it, I think. I think people realize crazy. Easy. Yes. I, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. I used to get super angry when somebody would come to church and fall asleep in the back of church because you can tell when their heads are nodding like they're falling asleep. <laughs> And But here's what's going on. I'm seeing more people come to church and fall asleep than I've ever seen, and I've come to believe that that is actually beautiful because if we can come to church and find rest in the presence of Jesus, we're doing something good. (laughs) For a tired generation, they're looking for a place to rest, and we can rest in Jesus. Um, There are a lot of great books out there. John Mark Comer's book on Rest Garden City Mm -hmm. is great. Uh, Abram Heschel's book is phenomenal, The Sabbath. I mean, there are just Marva Dawn's book on The Sabbath, so good. Uh, and I, I hope that this book becomes an important contribution to this field because Sabbath amnesia has taken over the church. And we've got to remember the line in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath. We've just got to begin with that. Mm. Simply remember it. Change of subjects. Uh, AJ, are you going to be at the, I'm going to be in Portland next month at the uh, Leaders Forum. Are you going to be there? Do you know anything about that? I'm doing everything in my power <laughs> to be there. Awesome. Everything cool. <laughs> in my power. I'm actually going to be your way. On the um, on the sixteenth of on the sixteenth of February, I'm speaking oh. at uh, Northwest Nazarene, so I'm going to be there your way on uh, the sixteenth. So can, if there are any students that um, that that listen to this, make sure you come to chapel that day. Can you uh, can we grab a meal or a, a drink? Or something? I would. Yeah, love it. Okay, cool. Well, let's. I, I mark that down, and yeah, let's make that happen. I'm 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 almost positive I'm here. Um, so yeah, just a shout out to anybody from Portland listening to this. I'm going to be out there on. I think it's uh what was it uh, May t- or no February twenty I want to say the last February twenty sixth or twenty seventh I believe it's on the website centerforfaith.com. and yes. uh, yeah I would love to see you guys there. there's still room for the forum I think we're getting close to sold out um, but yeah as of now there's still room so if you want to come to the leaders forum where we're talking about faith sexuality gender um, 
would love to see you there. So, AJ, thanks That's so much for being on. And, uh, yeah, let's do this again, man. This is a lot of fun and super challenging and, and encouraging. So many blessings to your yeah. ministry and, and to your writing. And also to you, brother. Grace and peace. Thanks for listening to Theology Nara. We will see you next time.